The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week we're talking about the way that the notorious cancel culture that's gripping British universities seems determined to silence Christian voices above all. There was a shocking example of this a few weeks ago at the University of Nottingham, which is rapidly becoming synonymous with threats to free speech. The Catholic Diocese of Nottingham nominated Father David Palmer as Catholic chaplain to the university, whereupon the authorities attempted to cancel his appointment. The reason? Some students might be upset by his Catholic views on abortion. Eventually, Nottingham University had to back down, not, I think, as a result of pressure from Father Palmer's rather feeble bishop, but because the media started taking an interest. And one of the reasons that happened was that Father Palmer was being helped by the Alliance Defending Freedom, a religious advocacy organisation founded in the United States, whose UK director, Ryan Christopher, joins me today. Ryan, I want to talk about the broader implications of cancel culture on British universities and the targeting of Christians, and also the government's new legislation intended to reinstate free speech in higher education. But first, since you work closely on the case, I'd like to ask you about the University of Nottingham's attempt to slam its gates in the face of Father Palmer. Father David Palmer was appointed by his bishop, the Bishop of Nottingham, the Catholic bishop, to be the chaplain for Catholic students at the University of Nottingham. And historically, that's how it worked. The, The bishop proposed the priest he wanted to be chaplain. The university said, yeah, okay, great, that's fine. But that wasn't the case with Father David. And in fact, what Father David found was that he was being put through a series of, in effect, interviews in a way that previous chaplains hadn't. And in those interviews, he was being grilled about very particular aspects of his Catholic beliefs, really core aspects to him. What it came down to was that there had been complaints, I believe. It was a complaints-driven interview process. And the complaints were that Father David Palmer in effect, was a pro-life Catholic. What he'd been expressing on Twitter was opposition to abortion up to birth in the USA. He'd been uh, also saying that he didn't believe it was good that the government could introduce a law or policy uh, in assisted suicide that would mean, as he put it, the killing of the vulnerable. And it transpired in his interviews when when he asked what the real issue was, that it was the fact that he had tweeted these things. Now, what... The university used to defend their grilling of him in those interviews was that they were concerned that the tone of his language would lead to upset and division on campus among students and staff, as as the complaints had already, I guess, proven in, in their eyes, and that appointing someone, in inverted commas, like Father David, might break their own policy of inclusion and diversity. But at the same time, they were trying to claim that, of course, this isn't about your Catholic views. We've got no problem with your Catholicism as you express it. And this was deeply confusing to Father David. And when he, as I understand it, asked for clarification about what exactly in his tweets was problematic, 
I'll give one example which highlights the, the problem well. He was told that in his tweet on assisted suicide, it would have been acceptable if he had tweeted that he opposes policies that would bring in end-of-life care, in inverted commas, uh, instead of saying that the uh, vulnerable could be killed. Father David said to him, well, that, that is my view. <laughs> and it's the view of the Catholic Church, that an assisted suicide regimen would involve the killing of the vulnerable. And we've seen evidence of that in other jurisdictions. But it's also just factual language. And what those grilling him who had issue with his view seemed incapable of was being able to understand that there is a connection between the words he uses and the reality that he believes in. And he was trying to explain to them, listen, if I use the phrase end of life care, I'm literally saying I believe in something that I don't believe in. I have to call this killing, I'm afraid. And it's a legitimate expression of my Catholic belief. Every Catholic priest you would want to employ or have associated with the university would share my beliefs. So I do think this is ultimately an issue with my Catholicism. So what we're seeing here is basically the control of debate through the micromanaging of language. That's exactly right. In effect, the University of Nottingham's position was we do believe in tolerance and diversity of opinions, and we do believe that you can have your Catholic faith, but we have to manage the expression of that in public spaces on campus or online in order to prevent people feeling upset and alienated because of your belief. I think they would all say we believe in a tolerant and liberal society and a tolerant and liberal campus. They somehow believe that you can hold that view where you're enforcing homogenous speech codes in effect, alongside the fact that you can have a flourishing, diverse, liberal campus life. And those things aren't compatible, but it's a practical fudge, I think, in the moment, born of a few, few issues. Firstly, I think an anemic understanding of what tolerance really is, and that people, to have true tolerance and a liberal regime, you need people to feel uncomfortable, insulted, and really dislike what's being expressed at times and have to deal with it rather than try to censor it. But the problem we have is the culture in which these uh, employees at the universities and some of these academics have swum in for the whole of their careers is of institutions where the culture is actually you can get away in practice with cancelling those that you disagree with. And there will be no re repercussions for those that use the levers available to them to do that. But to be clear, the university is only worried about liberal people, which I suppose is the majority of students, taking offence at something. They're not worried about any speech that might offend, say, conservative Christians. I don't know if conservative Christians are as likely to complain about being insulted or offended. What I do know is that when conservative Christians are asked about their experiences on campuses across the country, they feel that they are disproportionately targeted and censored and that they're telling pollsters and people like us that work with them on the ground that they're having to consistently self-censor, either to feel like they're surviving in their cohort in class or to be able to progress um, academically. I've got several friends who have t spoken about their PhDs and their supervisors in effect saying, unless you do X, Y, and Z, or unless you censor X, Y, and Z, this isn't going to go very well for you. So I think there's a real climate of fear around both academic progress, social standing, and also career prospects. We commissioned a national poll uh, around a year ago, 
and that Sedation poll found that, you know, a good half of students are concerned that there's in effect self-censoring, that around a third to 40 percent of students are genuinely concerned for their career prospects if they express their orthodox Christianity. There is a real problem, like you say, for, for orthodox Christians um, feeling like they have to self-censor. And there's good reason for that. I think there's a really good example of that in practice with, again, the University of Nottingham, sadly, again, a publicly professing Catholic who is openly pro-life. She's the head of her pro-life society, and it was Julia, and she um, was studying midwifery. And two academics, as I understood it, made a complaint about the fact that she was manning a pro-life stall at Freshers' Fair. And on the back of that complaint, she was suspended from her practical placements at the, the university. And what that meant is there was no real prospect of her graduating that year if those placements couldn't be completed. Now, you're usually suspended from your practical placements because you've started dropping babies or, you know, you've been really insulting and abusive to people. And the reason she was suspended from her practical placements was that she was the president of a pro-life society that was handing out pro-life literature. And again, there was this sense of, well, we've got no problem with you being fully Catholic, but you simply cannot in any circumstances be handing out literature that is pro-life. Why? Because we're claiming that this affects your professional capacity to deal with women as you meet them. And they had no evidence that Julia had no ability to meet with women as, as she met them, other than the fact that she was pro-life. And their inbuilt assumption was that her pro-life beliefs would bleed into the care she gives as a midwife in ways that they couldn't quite articulate fully, really. I mean, it was some, a vague sense that she might not be able to offer all kinds of choice to women that, that come to her. Well, she has a legal ability to opt out of doing that anyway. So I don't see why that was so much of an issue. And so again, there was this attempt by the university to try and say, the issue isn't that you're pro-life per se, you just can't say it in a public forum and I hope to train to be a midwife in our school. So Julia ended up challenging what happened through a complaints process um, with the university and we helped her with that. And she ended up getting, a, 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 I'd say, a limited apology from the university. They found that they had made mistakes in, in barring her from a practical course. But it, it was extraordinary. When they gave their statement to the press, they immediately followed it up with, we're, we're basically a pro-choice university. <laughs> and, and the implication was, yeah, we technically got it wrong with Julia in some ways, but we're pro-choice. So, you know, the message that sends to, I think, pro-life students and practicing Catholics or other Orthodox Christians is, you know, don't bother expressing your pro-life or openly Christian views. We think you can have them in inverted commas, but when the rubber hits the road, we're going to look to censor you. And I, I'm afraid to say the David Palmer situation does smack of an institution that hasn't learned its lessons and I've seen an awful lot on social media since from Catholic Twitter sphere, where people are saying, what, what's, what's the issue with the University of Nottingham and Catholicism? I know that's not their intention. And I think there's a lot of incompetence or a lack of training or awareness as much as any malice. But there is a real issue with complaints driven censorship uh, universities uh, like this. And Fortunately, the government are trying to resolve this through the new higher education bill that's going through Parliament right now. But it's not just Nottingham, is it? I mean, throughout Britain, 
actually throughout the Western world, universities have adopted wholesale the prevailing opinions of the liberal intelligentsia. So in Britain, that would mean anti-Brexit, anti-Tory, against any conservative views on sexual morality, completely opposed to any free discussion of sensitive issues such as immigration and race relations. But also with this intolerance goes an equally radical tolerance of extremist views expressed from the left. So, for example, campaigns run by, I think, a genuinely extremist organisation, Black Lives Matter, whose fundamental beliefs are actually far more ideologically extreme even than those of your average liberal academic, are never challenged. It's this policy, which has also unfortunately been adopted by the Vatican under Pope Francis, of no enemies to the left. Yeah, I think um, there are some culprits that have been worse, at least in terms of the notable examples of censorship or suppression of minority or religious views than others. I think Nottingham is obviously right up there. Not only did you have the father David Palmer and the Julia situation, but also um, the refusal to affiliate their pro-life society. Um, so you had three hits in you know a couple of years there that have made the press, and that's those that have made the press. University of Cambridge, sadly, my alma mater, I think, is a is a, a terrible example of Jordan Peterson being disinvited to give lectures on, I think it was the Book of Exodus at the theology faculty, on really spurious grounds. Again, complaints-driven. I've spoken to, very recently, a, a fellow at Cambridge, and you know he admitted to me that he has never felt able to express his Christian views in the senior common room, and has never once gone near the fact that he was pro-Brexit, because he knew that this would really affect not just his social life, but also his professional life. Now, whether he's right or not, I think that culture is real. There's no doubt that those on the left are also self-censoring and feeling censored at times. That comes through in the polling, but a much higher majority, I, th- I think of a policy exchange poll from a couple of years ago, showed that I think around 37% of right-leaning academics feel that they have to basically shut up and put up more than their, their colleagues that wouldn't share their views. So there are better and worse institutions. I think actually universities like Oxford are starting to get that together. I think there's a little bit of a, a change in the winds. Uh, there, are, there are certain critical masses of minorities in lots of these institutions that are saying, hang on, we've had enough of this. So universities aren't going to survive and thrive, particularly in the liberal arts, if this kind of culture persists. And I do actually believe that universities will start to die if this culture persists, and you'll find other more creative, cheaper, more interesting ways of having discussion and formation. Well, I think that's right. And it's interesting to note that in America, some corporations are now reluctant to hire graduates from Ivy League universities, where the culture of postmodern gender politics is at its most totalitarian, because they just don't want to employ young people who are professional offence takers and who could be a complete nightmare in the workplace. And these companies are saying, OK, we'll employ graduates from universities where the culture is less neurotic. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about the United States in this context is I think there is more openness to accepting people who have, don't have the standard qualifications. Here in the UK, we're obsessed. I mean, I, I was a teacher for a while get your GCSEs, get your A-levels. That's the key to showing you're a competent human being. And that's pretty much it. We're, we're obsessed with those two kind of qualifications to show um, to universities or to employers that you're, you're worth something or you're competent. 
In the US, I think there's much more of a, a market for a creative minority and a critical mass of those that actually say, you know, universities like Stanford and Yale don't necessarily produce the, the best free thinking, well-rounded individuals for my organization. And in fact, some of the, the smaller, new bespoke liberal arts colleges in the US that have a classical education, often a Christian education alongside it, are producing more interesting more open, uh, more employable young men and women. And I'd love to see there to be some kind of small revolution in the UK that's similar. In the US, they have the, the money and the market of people. There's so many people that you can have this quiet revolution and this alternative grades economy, whereas in the UK, we're bound to A-levels, GCSEs, and a degree as showing employers that, that you're worth something. And in fact, I think The Spectator is a really interesting example of divergence in that culture and a creative approach, because as I understood it, at least until fairly recently, your editor would take people's writing samples rather than their CV and their qualifications and their age and gender as the first step in seeing if they were fit for the job. I think that's still our policy. Yeah. That's great to hear. But going back to America, the thought police are unfortunately more powerful than ever in the majority of American campuses. You can feel it the moment you set foot in one. And I was wondering, do you think that the sort of mind control that's being attempted at the University of Nottingham is something essentially that's been imported from the United States? In, in one sense, I think aspects of the culture war, you can say this really com comes very directly from America. Look at BLM and, and the way that that's been framed and how that then applies on campuses now. When it comes to the more general culture of we can get away with censoring those views that we find unacceptable, I think that's just a culture that has grown up in practice uh, on campus in large part because student unions are dominating in terms of the culture. Student unions, I think, don't get the same kind of training. Um, they're not as tuned into being as balanced and professional as I think your average academic or university worker often is. And student unions often have very clear causes that they're campaigning for. And again, when it comes to the issue of life for conservative Christians, they'll often find that these student unions are pushing a pro-choice policy that should be applied to the whole university. Well, the university can't allow that formally. That's just, that would be discriminatory against the worldview uh, and, and certain religious beliefs too. But that doesn't matter to the student union because they feel there's no consequence in doing what they see as their political work, their social work on campus. Oh, I certainly know what you mean about student unions. And actually that goes back to my own days as a student in the 1980s when there were all these young ideologues on state-funded sabbaticals agitating for various left-wing causes. We used to think of them as complete losers, but it wasn't long before they were occupying senior positions in the Labour Party and, of course, the BBC. I mean, it didn't matter that during this time, often there were Conservative governments in power with quite big majorities. The left liberal intelligentsia, whatever you want to call it, carried on calling the shots in every publicly funded cultural institution. And eventually that came to apply to the mainstream churches as well. And I think this is a significant difference between Britain and the United States. British conservative public intellectuals, like Roger Scruton, for example, could write for certain newspapers, but that was it, basically. Whereas in America, 
conservative public intellectuals could make and still do make a lot more noise and wield more influence, as do conservative religious leaders, of whom I think there are basically precisely none in Britain. The attempt to silence Father Palmer would have been a much bigger story in America, not least because various Catholic bishops would have quite rightly thrown an absolute fit. They're not here. I mean, Father Palmer may have been formally supported by his bishop, who's a complete non-entity, called Bishop Patrick McKinney of Nottingham. But I don't recall the bishop making a public fuss about it, and I wouldn't expect him to, because last year we had Father Palmer on this programme, and he was talking about how he planned to circumvent, quite legally, the government's lunatic ban on worship in churches by saying private masses in the main body of the church that people could attend very carefully socially distanced so absolutely no health risk involved and then no sooner had the podcast gone out than the bishop pulled the rug from underneath him and told him not to do it and i certainly don't think the university of nottingham's reluctant decision to allow father palmer to be their chaplain really had anything to do with pressure from the bishop well i think the university ended up ceding the position for a few reasons. Firstly, the, the diocese did say it's Father David or it's no one. We're not, we're not budging on this. At the same time, the fact that Father David, I think, had been, been covered on BBC News and people picked up on the story on Twitter. You know, if you're the university, I can imagine all of a sudden the Telegraph calling you to ask questions about why you've done what you've done. If lawyers hadn't already been involved, I think at that point, a, a, an institution gets lawyers involved. And any lawyer worth their salt looking at the situation would be saying to their own institution, hang on a minute, guys, you need to be super careful here that there isn't a case that can be brought against you, that you're discriminating formally on the grounds of his Catholic beliefs. Any lawyer working for an institution like that that comes across this would take the conservative line and say, listen, if you can resolve this informally, you need to resolve this informally. So I think it's likely that the media coverage that Father David generated mostly himself, alongside lawyers then probably having a word in the ear of, of senior members of the university, are the reason they ended up coming to an acceptance that he would be appointed. I, I fear, again, that lessons have not been learned. There was no sense of no public apology by the university, no recognition that this could have sent a message out to those that share Father David's beliefs that they're not welcome on campus. And I think if Father David hadn't been appointed in the end as he has been, it would have sent a, a really terrible message to young Catholic students thinking of applying to that university that, that, that really they're not welcome to, to be Catholic there. So I'm, I'm glad that the university ceded, even if their reasons might not have been because they really do, do believe in full fat tolerance, uh, you know, in a liberal uh, environment for freedom of expression. I'm glad you mentioned fear of being sued, because I think in America, well, first of all, you have lawyers who write very forcefully in the media about the threat to conscience rights. I'm thinking of the formidable Andrea picciotti Bayer, who we had on the programme a couple of weeks ago, who runs the Conscience Project. And you have two big organisations, one of which you work for, dedicated to protecting freedom of speech on campus. And they're Beckett Law and the Alliance Defending Freedom, of which you're the UK director. And I'd imagine that cancel culture keeps you pretty busy at the moment. Our work day in, day out over the last two years has been dominated in terms of volume by 
university after university disaffiliating societies, where it's usually student unions, although they're acting as part of the university, disaffiliating societies that are refusing affiliation of societies that they don't like what they stand for. And time and time again, having to informally win these fights behind the scenes. So usually it's so clear cut under the Equality Act that the moment that these universities get a, a letter, letter before action saying there will be legal action here if you continue to discriminate against a Catholic view or a pro-life view, whatever it might be. They, the, again, the lawyers get involved and they say to the institution, stop being silly, basically. You have to back down here. The cultural problem is that I think in practice, most universities aren't that scared of, of being sued in the way they might be in the US because the bar is so high here. So, you know, in Julia's case or Father David's case, it's quite a high bar under the Equalities Act to take a case and win it against an institution like this to, to kind of prove positively that what's going on here might be based in some kind of aminess of discrimination against my sincerely held belief. And one of the things we've been calling for, along with other academics and, again, um, institutions like Policy Exchange, was that a new statutory talk could be created. That means someone like Father David or Julia could take the university to, to court on the basis that they had basically suffered detriment through not being able to express what they believe. And the new higher education bill is going to introduce that talk, which should make the threat of legal action for an for institution far more real than the grounds that somebody would have under the Equality Act currently. So how's it going to work in practice? The new legislation seeks to improve what is actually quite good law already. It's a law that universities have been able to ignore with impunity. That's the problem. So the law as it stands says universities, as far as they practically can, should enable freedom of speech on, on campus. And what this law does is it, it makes those duties, um, it strengthens those duties, but it closes the key loophole. And the key loophole, as I was saying earlier, culturally, is that student unions traditionally have felt that they're somehow immune to this positive duty to enable free expression of everybody in their spaces. And what it does is it, it makes really explicitly clear that they are also subject to this positive duty too. Alongside that, we now have a way of enforcing this law. So the problem is that the law existed, but there was no way of enforcing it. Institutions weren't scared of breaking it, and there were no real consequences for them. And so there are new complaints procedures, and the Office for Students now um, has a, a qualification on registration with regards to your code of practice for freedom of speech. And the Office for Students is going to be investigating now in a really intentional way institutions' records on and freedom of speech too. And then finally, as we mentioned before, individual students or academics will be able to take their own institutions to court. And I imagine that the woke academic left must be going bananas about this. Various unions and various academic organisations and universities have all come out against this bill. And one of the things that they're saying is there is no censorship culture on campus. Um, not many student events are cancelled as a proportion of all events. This is an overblown issue that isn't really existent on the ground. So leave us alone. And I think, again, the fact that our lawyers have spent half their time over the last couple of years informally stopping universities from formally discriminating against students shows where the nature of the problem is culturally 
it is there, but it's not often hitting the headlines. And it's it's very rare that you'll see the Tim Stanley, Brendan O'Neill debate cancelled and that hit the Times, or you'll see Amber Rudd cancelled from speaking on a on a university. That that's very much the tip of the iceberg. So I would say this is a much bigger problem culturally than the institutions are are claiming, and that this this legislation is really desperately needed. Not so much for for the law to be changed in and of itself, although that's good. It's that law has a trickle-down effect into culture, and hopefully there'll be pause before people go after those with minority views or controversial views. Ryan Christopher, thank you very much. And before we go, here's a prediction. The battle to reinstate freedom of speech for Christians in universities will receive no significant support from the churches. One of the themes of this podcast is the ever-increasing stranglehold of the liberal bureaucratic left on the mainstream denominations. In the last episode of Holy Smoke, we heard the Reverend Marcus Walker, who is Rector of St Bartholomew the Great in London, talk about the preposterous bureaucracy that's sucking the life out of ordinary Church of England parishes. And something similar is happening in the Catholic Church. The Pope's risible synod on synodality is nothing more than an attempt to strengthen the hand of his ideological allies among the laity. I think what distinguishes institutional Christianity in the 21st century, certainly in the West, is a mixture of gutlessness and authoritarianism. Anglican and Catholic bishops allow hardline secular thinkers to dictate their own agenda. And where the secular consensus contradicts their own traditional teachings, they just roll over. But when it comes to dealing with members of their own flock, whose views are too orthodox for their tastes, they shamelessly adopt the dictatorial style of a prince-bishop, or in the case of Francis, one of the more tyrannical medieval popes. These are shameful double standards, but they're not unique. I'd suggest they're quite closely related to the suppression of free speech in universities that are supposed to be encouraging it. The arch-secularist proponents of cancel culture are usually very scornful about organised religion. I wonder if they realise what close allies they have in Lambeth Palace and the Vatican. <laughs>